My name is Emma Robinson, and I'm one of the co-hosts of Wharton Tech Talks. Today, we are talking to Mo Shahzad, the CFO of Relativity Space, a company valued at over $4 billion pre-revenue. Relativity is one of the very few companies with a good chance at disrupting SpaceX. We discuss what it takes to lead the financials of a company whose next launch is not until 2026. Mo also shares his response to the question, why are we spending so much on space exploration when we have so many issues on Earth? This is one installment in our space series. Check out the other episodes and subscribe to stay tuned for more. Welcome, Mo. So happy to have you on the podcast. To start off with, could you just give us in simple terms an introduction to Relativity Space? Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to share a little bit about our story. So Relativity Space, we're a rocket company at the core. We're on a mission to become the next great commercial launch company, really focused on growing demand for space infrastructure and specifically constellation deployments. Our rockets will revolutionize how we connect and communicate on Earth by getting satellites to space. We've developed vertically integrated platform. Really, we leverage additive manufacturing, artificial intelligence, a variety of other through autonomous robotics to really 3D print rockets at the core of it. And our unique approach enables a really fast product iteration and really pushing the boundaries of what's possible to Today and ultimately do a variety of other things using some of our technologies that we've built. Amazing. So for many of our listeners, I'm sure that when they first hear about rockets and launching to space, they'll think about a major player that already exists, SpaceX. How exactly do you differentiate from what they do? Yeah, I mean, look, what I'd say is we're incredibly inspired by what SpaceX has done in the 20 odd years since their founding. I think in a lot of ways, the companies like us would really not be around if SpaceX wasn't able to trailblaze in the way they've done. You know, I'm personally super long and bullish on everything SpaceX is doing. I think for us, we're really believe that there's a segment of the market on constellation deployments where there won't just be a single player. It'll be more than one and what's driving the ultimate sort of end case and use cases here from a demand perspective that there's room for more than one and even more than two for that matter and so for us we're building a rocket that is called Terran R it's about 40 to 50 percent larger than Falcon 9 and it'll be really focused on deploying constellations and that's the first of the products that we're putting out but 40-ish percent of our team comes from SpaceX of the 1100 people that we have and really the culture that they built and the technical teams that they built were inspired by and have a very similar approach and culture to what we're trying to build here. Amazing. Yes, it's hard to imagine the entire launch market will be dominated by just one player like it is now. Are there other up and coming firms that you're also competing with that listeners may not have heard of? Yeah, there's a number of players in the industry that cross the world for either sovereign reasons, regional reasons are happening in different parts of the world. Here in the US, there's a number of players that have smaller rockets, I would say. Some of them have announced now larger rocket programs, much like ours, although some of them are still smaller than the rocket that we've announced. There's a company called Blue Origin up in in the Seattle, Washington area that is Jeff Bezos's rocket company that's been 
trying something similar for a while at this point. There's a number of different players with very different architecture choices, product choices on what they're trying to build and at various sort of stages of maturity across the landscape here in Los Angeles, given SpaceX is based here and was founded here. There's a ton of rocket talent at the current moment. And also LA has a deep legacy of other aerospace and defense talent from some of the other primes in the aerospace and defense world. And a lot of them seem to be based here in LA, although they're spread out you know, relatively uh, evenly, I'd say, across the country as well. Makes sense. It's just a growing industry. What exactly is the dream for relativity and how far away are we from that dream? Yeah, I mean, look, I'd say that's actually one of the biggest similarities we have with SpaceX. You know, much like them, we believe in a future where life is interplanetary and that will fundamentally expand the possibilities for the human experience. Our long-term goal, and as audacious as that sounds, is to create humanity's industrial base on Mars. And the first step toward that long-term vision starts here on Earth. So we're designing, printing, and flying rockets, which use the 3D printing technology. And there's a variety of other things, as I mentioned, we're doing on the 3D printing side. But the ultimate vision would be to build this industrial base on Mars, for which we're going to need autonomous manufacturing. And that's where the 3D printing part will play out. In terms of how far away it may be, it's a personal belief that it'll be much sooner than what most people and humans believe today, but it's not five years away, certainly, but it's also not 50 years away. And I think we just want to be a core part of making life interplanetary. And that, by the way, for us, attracts incredible talent. The people that I get to work with and the privilege that I have of working with folks here, it's remarkable to me. It's a whole different mission orientation than anything I've ever experienced in my for-profit world or my non-profit world. Like people here really truly are driven by that cause and that mission as long term as it may be. Yeah, the aerospace industry is such a mission-driven space, and people are just so genuinely excited about what they do. And it's shocking how far we've come in just a short period of time. I love the museum in DC and Udvar Hazy, and just seeing and hearing the moon landing recordings, and then hearing you talk about potential of setting up communities uh, or manufacturing centers or what have you on orbit on Mars is just absolutely wild. So additive manufacturing, 3D printing seems to be a big core of what Relativity is thinking of doing. Why is that or how has that changed the economic landscape of space exploration and why is that so important? Yeah, so I'd say a couple of things. Additive from a long-term perspective is incredibly relevant to us because in order to do and make life interplanetary and some of the building of the industrial base on another planet, we're just not going to have human labor kind of walking around and hammering nails. You're going to need autonomous manufacturing. I think in the long, long run, additive plays a real role in that regard. I think in the near term for us, I'd say it's actually less of an economic decision to use that technology on parts of the rocket. It's much more about sort of the speed of iteration ultimately, right? So if you think about aerospace and defense and the sort of old model here for 60 odd years, we've relied on fixed tooling and complex supply chains to build aircraft that are made of hundreds of thousands of different parts, right? Unique parts. On the additive side, what it allows you to do is really reduce the complexity and reduce the time to market. And so what I mean by that specifically is we could, for example, instead of designing a rocket engine and trying to make the perfect engine, 
and then order a bunch of fixed tooling that may be a year or 18 months or two years away from a lead times perspective, and then learning on that engine and ultimately changing designs to then go back and try to order more fixed tooling, we can print an engine in a month and really start the component test and ultimately test a full engine and iterate almost in a snowflake way, if you will, another iteration of that engine without any regard for any fixed tooling. And so it really allows us to innovate at a speed that just wasn't possible. And then, yes, ultimately cost is a component of it, but it's a speed of innovation that is just fundamentally changed when you are using the additive technology, right? That's how that plays in today for us on the rocket side. Now, on a number of other use cases that we're considering when you think about new energy, like fusion companies, fusion is as much a science problem as it is a manufacturing problem. There are opportunities there outside of rockets when you think about other sort of defense department needs. There are many, many places where structurally you can really use additive for the very similar approach to iterate and improve products that haven't changed in the decades since they've been founded, right? That's how additive fits into the equation. Well, that makes a lot of sense. For our listeners, we've talked in other episodes of the Space Series and just with Starfish Space earlier this year on how impossible the long timelines are and the supply chains are in the space industry and how that's such a barrier potentially to getting funding just because it's hard to explain to investors these time horizons. I'd love to switch gears a tiny bit and talk about how you got to your position as CFO of Relativity. You are actually a graduate of Penn and undergrad Wharton. We'd love to hear a little bit more about your journey and how you ended up at Relativity. Yeah, sure. Happy to share that. You know, grew up abroad, born and raised in Pakistan. My parents decided to move to suburban Los Angeles in the middle of high school. I grew up a bit of a physics geek, actually, and was very much science-oriented. And so Got to Penn, I think, on a very nice spring day. Got fooled into what the weather is like all year round there. And actually started off as a bioengineering major at Penn and then transferred to Wharton because I really realized quickly that I didn't want to sort of spend my life in a lab necessarily, from the, at least on the bioengineering side. That's what I was exposed to and plunged in without knowing much about finance and gravitated quickly. I think a little bit of my math and science interests took me down some technical routes on the finance side. And really fondly think of my time at Penn and my time at Wharton and my time in Philadelphia that really grew on me as a wonderful cultural place to be. I will say that the Wharton education to this day now, you know, 20 plus years out, put me squarely in a classically trained capitalist bucket. And so I've used that knowledge on a daily basis. And so coming out of Wharton, I've done sort of a variety of things from involved in some of my family's businesses, which I ultimately hated and wanted to go prove my own self out. And they wouldn't hire me kind of in the traditional banking routes, but I end up at Deutsche Bank in an internal consulting role. I can speak a little bit of Hindi or fluently Hindi. And so they shipped me off to India to do a variety of different things. I met a bunch of people that were at Accenture that was a partner of choice there and up in Accenture strategy practice a year or so later. Did that for a few years. I started my own company. It was a mobile advertising company in 2000. 
2006, 2005, right before the iPhone, which I sold to a couple of guys up north and clearly not enough to retire. So still at it here. End up back at business school to hit a little bit of a reset. And this time I wasn't going to make the mistake of going and spending that time on the East Coast. So stuck to LA and had a wonderful time for a couple of years at Anderson here at UCLA. And honestly, with the idea that I was going to start another company or meet somebody who uh, had a wonderful idea I could partner with. And that never happens. And life is never sort of serial as you plan it. Ended up at Goldman on the investment banking side as sort of my backup. Thought I'd do it for a, a little bit, meet some people. And that ended up being five, almost six years in San Francisco, doing a ton of tech and media, t- media work. And for the better or worse, the world was flocking away from investment banking. And I got to plunge into a bunch of different deals in 08, 09, a bunch of restructurings, and ultimately the Facebook IPO to a lot of work for Apple and Disney and sort of simple consumer-oriented businesses. And so I, I got to do that for a while. And then when we had our first child, I just wanted to go back to being an operator. And I'm, a, I think, a tinker at heart. And I grew up in a family of sort of small businesses. And so I just like to believe I'm a real operator and took a role at a company called The Honest Company here in LA. Didn't know much about consumer products, ended up being about a five, almost six year stint there as well on a big turnaround of that business. And yeah, about four years ago, really wanted to hit a pause and think about what I really wanted to be when I grow up because I just hadn't taken that time to think about it and came across relativity was a uh, someone introduced us me to Tim our, our founder and I thought I could help him and I just fell in love with his approach and his idea and here I am and I spent the last four years or almost four years in the CFO role here I've had a variety of functions obviously finance accounting but people teams these days a variety of other groups groups that have some temporarily, some on more of a permanent basis that I've done here. And I probably spend half my time on or more on none of those functions and absolutely think about the CFO role and the mandate to help us drive the business forward. And that's my my job every single day and love working at a place where people are just motivated by mission. That's my story. So the honest company to relativity space sounds like quite a jump in industry. What convinced you or what made you believe that you could take the helm of at least the financial helm of a space company? Yeah, I mean, look, what I would say is at the end of the day, I'm a lifelong learner. And I think if you have sort of those underpinnings and you're open to learning, learning technically, learning about leadership, learning about yourself, learning from your mistakes, learning from your peers, learning from your teams that you can take like really any challenge on. I didn't know much about consumer products, which has its own complexity on the face of it, maybe simpler business on how to sell diapers or beauty products to moms, but had its own share of complexity. And I think the idea for me coming to space, just being starry eyed about rockets and a mission like making life interplanetary was just too fascinating. And I spent a bunch of time and I still spend a bunch of time walking the floors and talking to people and learning about why they're doing certain things. And if you approach anything that you do in that way, then you can always keep moving. My mandate, whether you're making widgets or diapers or rockets, is to help us move forward and help think about where we are. How did we get here? How do we go where we want to go? How do we do more of the things that we're good at? How do we do less of the things we're not good at? So it really doesn't matter ultimately what you're building as a product. 
I mean, that makes sense that, I mean, each industry has its own complexities. And if you have the basis, the financial basis necessary, then you could kind of adapt to whatever industry. But space is such an industry with such long timelines, such heavy capital requirements. From a financial perspective, how do you plan for such a bold vision? And how does the experience of CFO compare to your previous experiences? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, there's a number of things I could talk about there, but maybe the biggest differences I would tell you are one in most businesses, and this is true of consumers certainly, but practically any other business, there's just a lot more data and signal that you get. And so you put a product out and it works a little bit better than you thought or a little bit worse than you thought, and you can tweak and optimize and refine. When you run a long dated program of any kind that would take hundreds and thousands thousands of person hours, hundreds or maybe even billions of dollars of capital, and you're not getting a whole lot of signal on a daily basis to know whether it's going to work or not, you have to sort of find a way to bite-size the risk-return profile for every decision that you're making. And you have to have a ton of trust in your technical peers and domains that are just not easy to understand. So that's probably the most like obvious difference in how I have to approach the job. And then the second, I guess, other thing I would say here is fundamentally, and this is counterintuitive, but running a rocket program, at least, where if you are too risk averse in the choices that you're making and you choose to be very careful, you can end up in a position where you are actually, oddly enough, ultimately taking more risk because you're not spending enough and spending enough on hardware and learning quickly enough because you will learn too late something that you thought was really a linear thing, but now all of a sudden that's become a critical path and it's just sort of delayed value creation. And so there's this real balance in what you have to think about and what I spend a bunch of my time talking with my CEO or my peers on the technical side around what is the right level of risk to take? When do you say, hey, the paper analysis is good enough and now we're going to go build on this and then we're going to go try to blow up this hardware and the intention is to blow it up so we can learn from it and then rapidly iterate. And that's where some of the additive pieces help in what's necessary. But you really want to be careful and not being too conservative and it takes a very different sort of CFO mindset that isn't just a do the cheapest thing or buy the most amount of insurance type mentality, which can ultimately come back to buy you. So for both of those reasons, these are muscles that I get to develop and learn that are just fundamentally different than being almost in any other setup or environment. And of course, there's the growth pieces. Like when I joined, we were 85 people, something of that magnitude, three and a half years ago. We're just over 1,100. You can be sure that we've made a ton of mistakes along the way, and hopefully none will prove to be catastrophic. But whether it's what the hiring bars are and processes are to systems and how to develop systems of accountability and the like in this type of environment, none of that's been easy. But I wouldn't say that any of those pieces are like unique to a rocket environment. But the first two I mentioned certainly are. Mm -hmm. I want to unpack the idea of um, what you mentioned as risk. Could you describe just more concretely for listeners what that means in the space industry? Is it trying to spend money to develop a rocket just as fast as possible? Or what does that really translate into? Yeah, look, I think anytime you're doing any project, right, and you can put 
sort of any business school framework you want on it. But let's say there's three stools to any program. One would be sort of scope, like what you're trying to accomplish slash risk that's attached to it. Second would be schedule and how fast you can get that project done. And the third piece is the cost of doing that. And so there's this natural tension in each of those different legs to say, okay, if we want to do something that is you know, happening at breakneck pace and somebody thinks it should take a year for us to do, but I think we want to do it in six months, then I probably need to pay a lot more for it. It'll cost us a lot more. Or I have to think about the scope or risk that we're willing to take to say, hey, let's just build this engine and build the components without taking the time to individually test those components and hope and pray that at the end of the six-month period, that engine's going to work. And so there's this natural desire to constantly think about scope, risk, the costs, as well as the schedule and timelines, each of which are important, right? We want to do the things that we're saying we want to do them with the least amount of risk. We want to do them in the fastest time possible. And we certainly want to do them for the cheapest. But they all are in somewhat of a conflict. And so it's really important that we're constantly thinking about that. And that's true of like any small little component we're building to the entire multi-year rocket program with thousands of people working on it. And so how do you bite-size that and think about risk that's catastrophic, meaning you didn't think about, for example, ordering propellant tanks, which are pressurized tanks to holding some of the commodities that one needs to launch a rocket, for example. They have long lead times, but if you didn't think about the launch site system, you may get to the very end, but realize that now your propellant tanks are a critical path to you being able to launch on time. Something as silly as that to all of the millions of architecture choices that go on a rocket and the cost of not being able to launch, whether it was because you made the wrong choice on the rocket or because you didn't order propellant tanks is the same. You're going to have to sit and wait with a sitting rocket, lots of payroll to carry that you can't launch because you didn't think about some of that in the program. So these are real sort of carrying costs ultimately or scaling costs or where you have to go back and redo work on a piece of the rocket, which is then becomes critical path to your path to launch. What we'd highlight is probably true critical differences. You need to have everything on the right schedules, everything coming at once. It is a balance of a risk to figure out if it's, I mean, we talked to some startups also in the series and they need to balance proving to their investors that the idea is going to work, but also doing it quickly. And the longer you wait, obviously, the more of a chance it is going to work properly because you've worked on it longer. Could you explain or just from the financial perspective, I know that Relativity launched earlier this year for the first time, but has now switched gears and focused to Terran R. How have you had to cope with that or deal with that from a financial perspective? Yeah, we had our, as you pointed out, first launch for a vehicle we called Turn One that was about 80% 3D printed by mass. It got to space, didn't get to orbit, and there's a ton on the technical front on sort of all the learnings that we got. I think by any measure, it was the most successful launch for a privately funded company at first attempt. And our belief there was we have learned enough from what we were going to learn on that rocket and the architecture choices that we made. We ultimately see the market on the launch side really evolve to a much larger vehicle and that's the vehicle that we're building now. It's by payload capacity will be 20 to 25 times what the first rocket was going to do. So it's a much, much bigger vehicle 
And I'd say like, look, and this is true probably of any business, we really want to be going where the customer's needs are. And as long as we continue to follow the customer's needs, which for us was the ultimate North Star for the reshift and focus back to Terranor that we made is that's where the ultimate end market trends are headed. And so that's where we have, and we publicly announced $1.8 billion of a backlog that we have with nine different customers. That is the product that we want to focus on because ultimately, as I referenced, classically trained capitalists there will make us a lot more money than trying to ramp the smaller rocket. We have had the privilege of some incredible investors, long-term oriented investors, some of the the earliest SpaceX institutional investors that we've had on the cap table. And everybody has been supportive for us to do what is like right for the business, regardless of what we thought maybe a couple of years ago, even where the small launch market was going to be. So yes, it will require more patience. We believe and our investors believe that the amount of value creation that will come in a non-linear fashion going after that market is far superior to trying to, to uh, scale a one-ton rocket. Was it just fundamentally impossible to do both? I can imagine as investors having to wait another four or five years for a company to be generating like significant revenue. It might be sometimes a tough sell because we know that VCs don't like our whole typically only have 10 year horizons. Yeah. We were founded seven, maybe eight years ago. Some of the larger institutional investors have really only been in for the last two to three years on the high end. I would say mathematically, there are ways to generate IRR if you're really going after the bigger markets still in those horizons in a meaningful way. So I think it's much more about, and I believe personally, again, it's not a relativity view, but in my CFO hat that... One of the hardest things that companies, individuals as decision makers do is just cling on to decisions that they may have made because of uh, just the inertia. And I think the faster one can get to a sunk cost mentality and move to what's right on a forward looking basis, like that's what my job is, is to optimize the future value creation, not necessarily stick to what we thought was accurate in the past. And I think the right investors, and again, the privilege of building folks that have long-term horizons that are just as audacious as we are in our mission, we've had that privilege on the cap table, that's really important. And we focused on building the right cap table, even in the heights of the private markets where we had opportunities to raise money at higher and higher valuations. That was not the goal. Like we as a company, and I certainly come from a long-term greedy mindset, like right, the hope is to build a multi-deca billion valuation company over like decades and for the decades to come, as long as you can have investors that support that view, I think focusing on the near term, luckily, and maybe smartly in hindsight, we're not ready to be public, never considered being public, and don't have to optimize for what we said three months ago in an earnings call. And I think that's special about being able to build in the private markets until we get to a predictable operating cadence. Yeah, I mean, we've learned, the space industry has learned a lot of hard lessons about IPOs in the past. We can certainly hope, and obviously, I hope that Terran R, the first launch, goes perfectly, but there's a pretty significant chance, not significant chance, but space is very risky. Something could easily go very wrong. Obviously, not hoping for that, but how do you plan for that, such a high risk potential when you're thinking about finance? Are you saving enough money to give it another go, another three goes? 
Yeah, look, it goes back to some of the risk return stuff that we were talking about earlier, right? So a couple of things I'd say there, right? Ultimately, millions of things have to go right, and any one thing could go wrong for a rocket program not to work. What you really have to focus on and what we focus on intensely is a risk strategy that takes some of the smallest components that we're building and testing those components, then integrating them, testing subsystem and system level designs, and then taking stages, like let's say half of a rocket and testing that half of a rocket and testing the second stage, the other half of the rocket. You can really, really find ways to de-risk as much as possible so that by the time you are about to hit go on the launch pad, that you've sort of tested as much as one can on the ground 99 plus percent of the things that you could. And that is a really, really, really important part of the DNA of what we've got to build. And we've got to spend the money. And that's why it's an expensive program, because we're going to have hardware and testing along the way. The second thing I'd say there is, so rockets are an incredibly difficult problem, but they're a solved problem. And certainly, if you look at circa 2010, and this is really compute power changes and AWS and what's possible from a analysis and at the cost of what analysis is today versus what it even was 20 years ago, that there have been something like 22 or 23 publicly available data, 23 rocket programs across the world, including in China. 100% of them have been successful by the second try. And what that really means is even if you were to fail on the first launch, you generally know what exactly was wrong. Usually it's some software glitch and you come back around and hopefully you haven't obliterated the pad or obliterated and had a second vehicle on deck as, as we would to be able to quickly come back from that and relaunch a second time. So you don't want to get to a place where you have no risk or very little risk left on the table. But we also don't want to do is try to sort of go in there guns blazing and hoping all of it's going to work. And that knob is super important. And it's a core part of my job working with my peers to figure that out. Oh, that's an interesting phrasing. I've always just thought of rockets as being just insanely complicated and so likely to go potentially wrong if you're invading. But they are a solved problem compared to some of the companies we've talked to where they're doing something on space that's quite literally never been done before. I know that the space industry as a whole is facing headwinds. Has that impacted your financial strategy at all? I think less about the space industry. Actually, we obviously are part of the financial macro ecosystem. Yeah, that's true. Everyone's facing headwinds. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. It's more probably, if anything, I'd actually say space is a little bit more insular. Now, there's some parsing happening in the space industry and some reckoning for some where you know, money was easy or cheap. That may not continue to be the case here. That may change, unfortunately, for some amazing technical talents where the business models weren't clear. That may lead to some reckoning in the coming months and already has. I would say if you think about the end market dynamics for us, like we're really focused on telco and telco constellation deployments. There is a deep augmentation of terrestrial telco that's happening up in space. I don't think anyone would have predicted the pace at which Starlink has been successful. They've announced now a direct-to-sell service, which is still a couple of years away in a broad way. 
folks are doing Qualcomm thinking about things at like the chip level and how to go direct to sell over there. We've got companies like Apple that have announced the SOS feature. And if you know the Apple roadmaps, it doesn't take a leap to imagine that that's not exactly where they're going to stop on SOS features. Amazon's publicly talking about the Kuiper program where they're going to do global direct-to-consumer to internet. Also will be AWS connectivity. You've got telcos like Verizon, AT&T, each spend $22, $23 billion a year. They're not going to let sort of this value chain just eat up the terrestrials. So I think this is all really real in how physics has changed. Therefore, satellites have changed. Leo constellations are here to stay. And our belief is that in 20 years, the terrestrial telco infrastructure will be augmented dramatically by the space infrastructure. And the space infrastructure is going to look very much like what it does on Earth with a couple of large players, a couple of smaller players. And so there, for all of those businesses, the underpinnings are going to be launched. We want to be like the people that laid the cables in the 80s. It took a lot of conviction for someone to be like, yep, trust me, like everyone in every household or business is going to like need a landline. And people at the time, if you read some of the literature, are really like questioning that, like why would that even be necessary? And so if we can control the access to space or be one of the providers that can, there's a lot of value extraction, I'll put nicely, that's possible from the telco bits. And then you can layer on phase two and three, and people have been talking about edge computing in space and asteroid mining and moon missions and Mars missions. And I think in that world, for now, the government's paying for a lot of that. But as the privatization of some of that stuff comes about, there's many, many, many things that you could layer on. But for us, like just telco, just near term in the next decade is going to drive the launch market from where it is today to $40, $45 billion a year. And just we want a slice of that. And it's an incredibly profitable business on the launch side if you can build it appropriately with a reusable vehicle. Yeah, it's a long way of saying, I think there's a lot of macro headwinds, certainly. But for good businesses, we're finding the right investor base, including our existing ones, but also new ones that are willing to take long-term horizons and take a chance on businesses like ours. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've certainly convinced me with that mini speech that this is the future. But what then do the doubters say? There's got to be some flip side to what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, the doubters will tell you SpaceX is going to be the monopoly, that they're building a vehicle that's been five times bigger than what we're building, and that they're going to take everything there is to take up the space and at the pace at which Elon moves. And I think I opened this call or this podcast with you with that sentiment that we are long on SpaceX and deeply believe what they're doing. It may or may not happen in the timelines that sometimes Elon puts out, but we're huge believers in what they are doing. Now, that said, there is no industry, and I think SpaceX would not want that either, where they're effectively a monopoly. And over time, when the addressable markets are big enough, and certainly telco and the augmentation of terrestrial telco with space, that is a huge market, it's a trillion-dollar market across the globe. There is enough private capital to flow that will drive other businesses. And we feel very confident about our chances and the talent that we have and the privilege of people. A lot of them have spent time at SpaceX to be that next company, but there is no industry over time where just a single player has been like the only company to take things up and down. Yeah, the ripple effects are fascinating. No one ever wants to fool. It's not in anyone's benefit to allow this to become a monopolized market. It's crazy to think that 
or the success of relativity could like decrease costs of accessing the internet in like rural Africa or rural wherever. That's just so exciting. That's a piece that a lot of people that are sort of naysayers, not on the financial side or on the technical side, but people believe why focus on space when there's all these problems on Earth, right? And this is, again, new to me. I didn't grow up as a rocket person or fascinated by space more so than every other five-year-old boy or girl out there. In the quest for space, like we have found so many things and invented so many things. And there's a long list of these things, like from a treadmill to infant formula to eyewear. Like there's just a bunch of stuff that we have invented as a human race in the quest for space, which is just really, really special to me. And what we're enabling here, some of the things you were talking about, like there's 3 billion people across the globe that are not connected. It is a wild thing to think about with us here in the US and being used to smartphones. But 3 billion people have never experienced the internet and the kind of possibilities in education, which is one of my passion areas where I spend a lot of time in the nonprofit world on healthcare and education, like that is going to change the world. When we think about climate and earth observation, like that's happening from up in space. The things we know about climate, we only know because we are finally observing space from up top. And I think those mission pieces are simply fascinating. And then the last thing I'd say is, I think we live in one of the most special times that humans have ever lived. Like I am so thankful for living now, not like a hundred years ago. People will often ask us like, well, why do you want to get to Mars and make life interplanetary? Like there's enough to do on earth. Is it because we have to, or we're killing each other? And our belief is not that. Our belief is actually, it's, and my belief, which I subscribe to is simply that we want to get to Mars because we can. And it's a simple curiosity that drives our ambition it's not because we think we're going to use up all the resources. And I think that's something really special about that. It's like having a boat that's saying, hey, you know what, we're just going to use it on the lake right by our home here. Like we're not going to want to explore what's on the other end of the Pacific. And I think this is a really, really special time to get to Mars because we simply can. Anyway, not to take it down too much philosophy, but those are my personal views. No, I love that. I think that oh, there was no way 50 years ago we could have predicted all the amazing things that can be done in space and microgravity. And so there's no way now we can necessarily predict all the good to humanity, something like going to Mars would be. And so I agree. There's definitely just dividends that have yet to be paid from space exploration and so much left to do. To wrap up a little bit, two ending questions. I'll start with the first one. Do you have any advice to any people interested in the space industry who might not have a technical background? Yeah, look, my I don't know if it's specific advice. It's just that when people think of space, there are so many different elements to space, whether it's different types of businesses or even within those businesses, the types of skill sets needed. We're certainly hiring relativity across like an engineer's guy from equipped with our talent teams here. Like we'll take any engineer of any kind, and that's true bioengineers, certainly mechanical, propulsion, all the way across the gamut. There's actually also a role for any sort of business mindset. We have marketing and brand teams, and we have certainly finance teams and accounting teams. And so you don't just have a linear path. And you look at someone like me who never 
even ever dreamed of it and then fell in love with it and spends his life now sort of educating himself on space like so much is possible and it's inspiring to be around that crowd on the technical side and don't be discouraged by the line that you may have chosen like there is a role at some of the companies like SpaceX, certainly companies like Relativity and the many, many, many smaller companies or earlier stage companies than even us. And there's a skill set that's needed across the board. So there are many opportunities to go find. Agreed. That's what I'm trying to get the listeners to believe in. Then my last question I'm asking everyone, is there any other sectors within space or industry that you find really exciting that people should look into? Oh, that's a tough one. I'm obviously biased because I think launch is the place to be and it will control. Besides launch, I want something new. (laughs) I think over time, I'm a big fan and mostly because I was a part of a thing last night listening to one of the SpaceX commercial folks talk about it. But I think the world right now is underestimating the value of point-to-point transport and cargo. What that is, for those that may not be familiar with it, is effectively taking a reusable rocket up into space and then coming right back down to go, for example, from LA to Tokyo in 30 minutes or 45 minutes. And I think it's going to be built and that ecosystem is going to be built in the quest for space, but will change the game on commerce and healthcare and maybe even socioeconomic disparities across the globe if we as a human race can figure that out. So it's a little bit further out, certainly the human pieces of it, but even just on cargo transport, on how organs could get around or blood could get around, things like that, I think will will and will have a deep impact. And it's not very sort of sciencey, and again, it's not one of those things that's 50 years away. It's not three years away, but I think those are real possibilities. And SpaceX, kudos to them, leading the charge there. There are many other ancillary businesses getting built or thought of at the moment. And I find that to be a real game changer for us as a human race. Wow. I had literally never even thought about that, using space to get from LA to Tokyo in 30 minutes. Human aspect of that would be great, but I'm content to wait. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the conversation. I've really enjoyed this conversation and hopefully anyone listening to as well. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome.